Hi everybody, this is Ed from the 100 Podcast. Just wanted to preface this episode, we're going to have Max Backhouse join us, the former Manchester Originals analyst and current Lancashire analyst. He's joined us to talk through the retention period. It's a really, really interesting chat. I think you're going to enjoy it. The reason I preface is this was recorded on Tuesday, a couple of days before we learned the passing of cricket legend and London Spirit head coach Shane Warne. Shane meant everything to me and Charlie. And just for me, Shane Warne was the first cricketer I loved. He's the reason I loved cricket. I watched that 2005 Ashes and I was mesmerised by a man full of such charisma and talent and just pure brilliance. He brought theatre to the game that nobody else could. And he's the reason I loved cricket. He's the reason I bowled my dodgy leg spin. I used to be able to turn it a bit and I always dreamt of being him. And growing up, I watched all of his spells and just dreamed of being able to to match it. And I never could. I don't think anyone ever will. And me and Charlie have been so taken aback by this. It's just such awful news. A man who's contributed so much to the game it really is just really difficult to comprehend. Uh, obviously, there's a hundred connection here. In this episode, we talk about the retentions he made for the London Spirit. And, you know, we were so positive about what he could do. Last year was a tough one. A squad carried over. He had COVID. You know, he wasn't in a position to really make us mark. And we felt this year, you'll hear how positive we are about the retentions. We felt this year it could have been really exciting to have him coach. So we wanted to keep this podcast out there because we think it's really interesting. But I just want to preface it saying this was before Warney's passing and, you know, we're we're hurting, to be frank. We're really hurting. It's a tough one for us. And we just want to send all the best to everyone who knew him, who loved him, his family. Shane Warne's gone way too soon. Uh, he's a true, true, true cricketing legend. So, yeah, this was recorded before the passing of uh, Shane Warne. Uh, we love you, Shane, man. We love you. Hello and welcome to The 100 Podcast. It's Ed and Charlie here with you. Hope you're well. Today, we have our retention special. We are going through all the retentions that have just been announced for each 100 team. And we're doing it in the company of Max Backhouse, who is the analyst at Lancashire and also was previously analyst at Manchester Originals. Max, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? Very well, thank you. Very well. I think there's so many fascinating points to go through this because I don't think we really had a sense of how this would play out, if at all. Obviously, we didn't know what the day was. It kind of got sprung on us. Um, We really didn't know how teams would go about things. And so I think it's interesting to get your input as obviously someone who's worked in the 100 to kind of get a sense of the processes behind it and then also look at how each team shapes up. Charlie, before we get stuck in... How are you feeling in general about the retentions? Because I think we had a very different vision of how this might go for a lot of teams. So it's interesting to get stuck into. Yeah, we kind of did our little mock retentions, I guess. We worked out exactly who we'd be keeping for what teams. And I feel like a lot of our opinions kind of overlapped a bit. We were both fairly convinced that a lot of teams are going to retain quite a lot of players close, if not exactly the 10 players that was the limit. Um, mm. It turns out that that isn't really how it's played out at all. I think it's going to be a lot more open at the draft than we expected, which from the neutral's point of view is going to be really exciting. But th- there's some really good retentions. There's some more questionable ones, <laughs> but we can get into the nitty gritty of that in a minute. 
Yeah, and I think the perfect team to start off with is the London Spirit. They were the worst team last year. Bit of a disaster for the Spirit. Obviously, Warney wasn't able to be there a great deal because he had COVID. The team was really built for the year before, uh, and it just didn't quite work for them. An aging squad, one that didn't really gel. It just didn't work for them. And I think they were one of the two sides I think we both thought were the weakest. Um, And just... You know, a team that wasn't really set out for a great deal of success. However, I think when we look at what they've done in terms of their attentions, I uh, think very highly of what they've done. Basically, I think they have a really good chance of being a really good team. Let me take you through who they've got. Um, so they have retained Glenn Maxwell and Owen Morgan in round three and four. That's 100K brackets. They have both their round one and round two selections open in the 125K range. That you know, leave some great possibilities um, for high-end talent there. And then they've got round five and round six open. Mason Crane and Dan Lawrence come in round seven and round eight, two high-quality domestic players. And then the final four picks are filled by Adam Rossington, Ravi Bapara, Blake Cullen, and Brad Wheel. So you have a couple of experienced batters in there, have some really exciting young talent. First thing I want to touch on, as I think I talked about on the Twitter thread, is that I think... Uh, and feel free to correct me, Max, if I'm if I'm thinking this wrong. I think Glenn Maxwell might have given up 25k for very little reason. Fred, yeah, yeah, and I, to be honest, I think I agree. Um, the only thing that obviously you did say could have played a part in it, they may have their eye on a couple of players who both have a one two five k minimum point, and that is the only thing that that it can be. Um, otherwise, as you say, somebody has screwed Glenn Maxwell out of 25k. Um, <laughs> to, explain, to explain this fully, so uh, this is a snake draft, right? So the Lundsberg have the first overall pick and the last overall pick in round one and two, basically. So they go one, 16, then they go 17. Glenn Maxwell is 17. But if they retained him at the one, two, five K range, you get 25 more K. He'd be at 16. But obviously, because they're picking right after each other, the only difference is the players in the 125K bracket. And given the prices have increased, I'm not sure how many players are going to go in for that. So it's an interesting little thing about poor old Glenn giving up 25K for potentially very little reason. But, but Max, when you look at this, Spirit didn't have a great season last year. But they have Glenn Maxwell, who is arguably a player you might think about selecting first overall, given you know, he, he's probably going to be available. He's a high-end player. Owen Morgan, you know, is a captain, a leader. And then you have these young talents. You have Mason Crane, who's a very good leg spinner. Dan Lawrence, who is you know, a middle-order player that I think has the potential to play for England in all three formats. And then you've got Brad Wheel and Blake Cullen, who impressed at times, got lots of upside and a couple of experienced players. So it feels like they've got a decent domestic young core, a couple of high-end players, a bit of experience, and then lots of slots open to, to, to rebuild. So I think it's, you know, on the presumption they have a good draft, I think it's a good base to have. Yeah, I mean, I think they've, they've left themselves quite a lot of work to do on draft day. But as you say, if that does go well, there's enough to work with there that it, it could go well. Um, I think I look at that middle um, core of Lawrence, Maxwell, Morgan, if they get on the park together, that's as good a middle order as there is at any side. Mm. Um, that's a really strong court. You mentioned the two young bowlers that they've managed to pick up at 30K, which is really good business. Um, and we can't get away from one of the big factors in that. 
having Owen Morgan in your squad as a ready-made gun captain is huge. Um, we saw last year how much captaincy played a part in this. Um, so having Morgan there and being able to get him at 100k rather than having to pay 125 is is really good for them. Yeah, I think the other thing to mention, actually, is that, of course, Zach Crawley and Mark Wood are also both there as their England players. Now, we don't know how much they're going to play in the 100, but there is a possibility that neither of them play Test cricket this year. It might be remote, but, but there is a possibility, and they'll be available for two games at least. So there, Zach Crawley, I think, has the potential to be a really good teacher when you open. And Mark Wood, we know, is a gun, gun bowler. So you have Mark Wood, Mason Crane, Blake Cullen, Brad Wheel, there straight away. Those are four really good bowlers. And you have Crawley, Maxwell, Morgan, Lawrence, Rossington. That's an interesting top five. It feels like they have the real basis for a team, Charlie. And given you've got all those gun players and so many slots open, it feels like they've got a really great opportunity to rebuild. I think a lot of that depends on their draft strategy and how they approach that. Um, I think Warney's suggested that Mitchell Marsh is going to be his first pick. The core he has retained is genuinely competitive at the very least. Obviously, how well it goes depends on the signings he makes in the draft, particularly, I think, the higher points. That's going to really going to be something that shapes this team. But if he does go well, if he does make some canny overseas signings and picks up some shrewd domestic players, and we know there's going to be some high-quality ones available in the draft, then there is no reason why this team here couldn't be competitive. And uh, Mitchell Marsh, I think, is in play. Mitchell Stark might be in play. Andre Russell might be in play. So I think there's players there. I think they are in a strong position. And to be frank, I really don't think I'd have done anything different here. Maybe Bapara is my one point of quibble, just because Mm -hmm. I think he's definitely a player on the decline now. And I think... When you have this opportunity, as Shane Warne has had, to completely refresh and rebuild this side long term, I'm not overly convinced Papara is the man. Then again, at 40k, you know, it's, he's very low in the price bracket. It's not that bad, all things considered. If that's the worst retention you've made, then you've done pretty good business, in my opinion. For me, the the one that sort of surprised me was looking at the overseas. Um, because, I mean, we'll touch on it a little bit through this, but... The Future Tools program is messy, to say the least, um, for this period. So it's going to be potentially tricky to get a whole load of people um, who regularly play international cricket over in this period. So you may see that there's a lot of value in having cheaper overseas who have maybe gone out of the international game or are just under that um, and being able to retain them at a low price. So for me, seeing what he's doing at the moment in the PSL with David Visa, the opportunity to potentially have retained him at a low price, mm. it surprised me that they've let that go. Um, and I will not be surprised at all if he goes out elsewhere. Um, so for me, that feels slightly odd. But um, other than that, I think I agree with you. Maybe Josh Inglis as well. Is that something you'd have considered? Because obviously he's he's not first choice for Australia right now, he might be a guy with, you know, potential upsiders overseas who could get slightly cheaper, who's not going to be unavailable a great deal. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Inglis has played a little bit for Australia of late. Um, Australia's availability seems um, potentially iffy at the back end. They've got some uh, games against Zimbabwe, I think it is, that are penciled in 
Um, there's a lot of talk that Australia might let some players miss those games. Um, but how many players is probably a different matter. Um, but you'd have thought if anyone's got the heads up on what's going on in Australian cricket, one is probably going to have, have his ears to the ground there. So maybe he knows something we don't about English. Yeah, and to be fair, I mean, we've seen Australia rest a lot of players to go to Bangladesh um, in that very cursed T20 series. Uh, overall, though, I, I think London Spirit are in a strong position. I think if they play this right, if they, if, I think they go in with a real concise strategy. I think they've got a good chance of being competitive, and I don't see why this team couldn't win the tournament. And given where you're starting from, that's interesting. Before we move on, Max, first overall pick, Mitch Marsh is in the conversation, Andre Russell's in the conversation. If we just took availability out of it, who would you potentially be leaning towards with that pick? I mean, anytime Andre Russell's in the conversation, he's got to be a big part of the conversation, hasn't he? Um, yeah, if we took availability out of it, I think he probably walks in at pick one. Mm. Um Availability, unfortunately, probably will play quite a big part in this. Um, so you've mentioned some of the names that might go early on. Um, I think Sunil the Ryan could probably be considered an early pick as well. Um, but yeah, it'd be very interesting to see what Warney does, won't it? I think Sunil the Ryan would be fun, actually. I think that would be really fun. If you paired him with Mason Crane... I think that would be interesting, but I, I think Mitchell Marsh is probably the front runner. And, you know, I don't think that's a particularly bad pick. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Right, let's move on to the Welsh Fire. The other side that really struggled in last year's tournament at times, I think they probably have the weakest base to work from. And if you look at their attentions this year, I think, to be frank, this side is in trouble. Uh, we look at the retentions. Ben Duckett is there in round four. Jake Ball is round six. David Payne is in round eight. Then you have rounds 10 to 12, Lewis Deploy, Ryan Higgins, and Matt Critchley. In round 14, you have Josh Cobb. Obviously, Johnny Bairstow and Ollie Pope are there. Bairstow's potentially going to be playing the test side, so he might not be too available. So you really got Ben Duckett, Jake Ball, David Payne, and some kind of bits and pieces players, really. There's not really a core there, whereas the spirit, you have Glenn Maxwell, Owen Morgan, Mason Crane, Dan Lawrence, Blake Cullen. There's things to be excited about. This feels a little bit more troubling from the Welsh Fire. They have three picks available, rounds one to three. But, and maybe I'm being harsh here, Max, and I'd be interested to hear your insight. I'm unsure how good you can make this Welsh fire side? Um, I think the the upside potentially for them um, is that it feels like Johnny Bairstow and Ollie Pope may well be competing for the same slot in the England team. Mm. Um, so there's a good chance that one of those is available. Um, it may well also be that Dan Lawrence is in that mix as well. Um, looking at the way things are panning out with England at the moment. So having one of those two available would make a massive difference. We saw how much um, having Bairstow last year totally transformed fire. They they looked a totally different team with him there and then when he, when he left. Um, so having one of those could be big. Um, I, like you, was slightly surprised by some of their retentions, um, but it's probably a good time to touch on 
the kind of concept that we from the outside will look in and say, why is player X not being retained? Um, the simple reality might be that player X either has been promised more money elsewhere mm. or simply doesn't want to play for the franchise. Um, and those things happen. And you obviously never find out about it from the outside. Um, it may be that either a Cobain or a Banton or somebody like that has had their head turned by another franchise who've offered some more money um, and they're willing to walk to the draft to see if that eventuates. So it may be that come the actual draft, we see one of those go back to Welsh Fire with a right to match um, because Fire weren't willing to match it in the first place and they're going to see where where the offers come for those players elsewhere. So I wouldn't be overly surprised if we see one of those back at the fire. Yeah. Tom Banton's going to earn 125k at this draft. I think that's very clear to me. I think given the places that some of the sides are, that the ability Tom Banton has, I think there are two teams that would probably draft him in the first round, potentially. I think those are the Trent Rockets and Birmingham Phoenix. I'm assuming that the Northern Superchargers might be in for him as well, but Joe Clark's in the mix. So I think there are three teams there where he might potentially land. So obviously the Welsh Fire would have to use the RTM to get him. And there's obviously the, the debate here with the overseas as well. We were surprised Kays Ahmad, who is one of the best players in the tournament, wasn't there. Obviously, they, I imagine they'd have offered him a bump up, maybe to 100k. He's not there. Glenn Phillips, middle order player, you think you could retain maybe in the 75k bracket? I don't know. Maybe you're surprised he's not there. It, it does feel like that any talent they've had, really, just been, they're just gone. And the fact that you don't have Banton, Kays, uh, and Glenn Phillips after all this, it feels quite troubling. I mean, Joey Richardson as well, potentially, you could have maybe kept. Uh, I think he was eligible. So it, it feels like... As well, actually. Yeah, it, it, feel, it feels like there's just been a massive talent drain. And I like some of the players they have, but I, I, it just feels like there's not the high-end stuff. And it, Jake Ball and David Payne are a really good example of this. I think they're two very good bowlers, right? I really do. I think Jake Ball offers a lot. David Payne is good with the new ball. But I think ultimately, Jake Ball and David Payne are sides, right? I think it's this way. I think Jake Ball is your chips. You love your chips. Bogstan does a great job. You love it, right? David Payne is your garlic bread. Enjoy it. Lovely. But if you're going to eat chips and garlic bread, you need a centerpiece of the meal, Right, it doesn't work unless you have some chicken. Right, let's just say this is Nando's. You can't go to Nando's and have you know your chips and your garlic bread and not have a centerpiece. That's what you need. I think David Payne and Jake Ball are good operators, but I think you need a really good third seamer alongside them. Otherwise, you're going to be in trouble. I think you need a gun guy, whether that's an Omrick Norhea, a Jai Richardson. I, I don't know which way you go. But it feels like you need that. And you also feel like you need a gun spinner as well. It, it just feels like they're not enough to, to give you a great bowling attack. And I think that's what you look at through all of these players. Ben Duckett's a nice player. Jake Ball, David Payne, nice players. But they're not the high-end guys. And then the final four guys... In what scenario do any of Lewis Deploy, Ryan Higgins, Matt Critchley, and Josh Cobb win you a game in the 100? Lewis Deploy is on the same money as Will Smead. 
just as a point of, of comparison there. That seems very hard to justify. No offence to Lewis Deploy. He's a very useful player, but he's not as good as Will Smith. And that's the thing. They're not game winners. They're not match winners. They're just kind of there. And I don't think any side would be particularly you know, delighted to have them in their first 11. So it just feels like the Welsh Fire have got all of these fine players, but none of the high-end talent. And I don't know where you go from that. It's tough, isn't it? I mean, even, you know, even Ben Duckett, you, you could say the same really for all of the areas in the squad. You know, Ben Duckett's a very fine player, but he, I don't think he's necessarily a, an elite player necessarily. So with the batting, really, the only elite guy you have is Bairstow. Pope, I don't think, is necessarily an elite T20 player, but he's very decent. But in basically every area of that squad, you're lacking a gun match winner. And that leaves you with a hell of a lot of work to do at the draft because you can't guarantee that there's going to be that many available, especially the domestic ones. You know, there aren't going to be that many really gun domestic options available. Most of them have been retained and a few that have popped up, as you alluded to earlier, with likes of Banton, Cobain, you know, maybe Laurie Evans. Those guys are going to go reasonably early, you think. So with that in mind, it's going to be very tricky to build a particularly exceptional domestic core because most of the players just won't fall to them. Ben Duckett is your garlic sauce for your Nandos. Again, <laughs> he is a really nice complimentary piece to your ridiculously talented batter. Say you you pair, I don't know, you bring in a, a really gun young player. So just for example, say Will Smead, right? If you're there, and then you've got your, you know, your Glenn Phillips there as well, your power hitter. You, you combine that and you have Ben Duckett as a really nice side piece. Great. But he's a centerpiece of this rebuild. They've basically built a Nando's without the chicken and it's not going to work. I, I just don't see a best case scenario being a, comp- a, a really competitive team. Maybe I'm being harsh. I just don't see how they become competitive in this draft cycle. I think there you might have been a slight bit harsh there um, on a couple of very <laughs> talented players, but I think they. I can see your issue, and they've got um, three picks directly up top, um, and then another at seventy-five and another at sixty. And I think you made a really good point, Charlie, that there's only so much top top end domestic talent left in this draft. I think there's a lot of talented players in here that are well suited to a 60 or 75k bracket but there are only so many that are 100 125k picks and if we also don't think that um that there's that many top top end international players because of availability there's a potential that one or two franchises end up massively overpaying for somebody mm. Um, and I, I hope it's not fire because, as you say, they've got quite a lot of work to do as it is. But I can see there being a point here where somebody ends up getting 100k and we're all turning around saying, Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I think there is potential there for me with fire. I, I can see what could be done for me. The strangest part of it. Um, is the overseas non-retentions. I understand with Case, Afghanistan do have some availability problems. Um, They're certainly not going to be available the full tournament. Uh, So I can sort of see that with Case. They may well go after another gun spinner um, that's fully available. The whole thing with Phillips seems bizarre to me. If Birmingham Phoenix think that Milne is going to be available, then surely Phillips is going to be available. And if you've got the option to retain the bloke who did so well in the blast, 
did well in the 100 and there could be issues elsewhere, it, it seems a no-brainer. Um, so you've got to wonder what's gone wrong there behind the scenes. Um, and as we touched on, there's a whole host of seamers that they could have retained as well. Um, not quite sure what they've got up the sleeve for draft day, but um, I'm quite excited to see, to be honest, because it feels like they really could end up as a decent side or they could crash and burn before the tournament even starts. Scenario for you both, what are your takes on this? You've got the right to match. They take Joe Clark with the second pick and then for their second round pick, they right to match Tom Banton. What do you make of that? I don't hate that at all. I think there's so little really elite domestic talent available that it's not a bad shout. I also don't hate it because, you know, Johnny Bersto's availability might be questionable. So you're not guaranteed his presence in the side. If he's not around, then with Banton and Clark, you've got two of the best English aggressive openers locked in already. However, that does kind of limit you a little bit in terms of, you know, that's your first two picks taken up already both on openers and you potentially already have Bersto available. But I don't hate it in theory. I don't know. But that's it's- just the thing is you if you have this kind of lack of talent, right, I think the, the best way of potentially going about it is just getting the most talented domestic core you can. And say Johnny Bersto is available in coming years and you can lock down Clark and Banton. You have Bersto, Clark, Banton, Duckett. Now that is something you can work with. And when you have pain and ball already and you only really need, you know, a really, okay, I say you only really need another good overseas seamer, another good overseas spinner, it just feels like that might be the bracket. I don't know what you make of that, Max. Yeah, I don't, I don't mind it. I, I can see the value in doing that. Um, I think I'd have to be incredibly confident on the overseas picks that I'm going to see lower down the draft because mm. you're then saying that you need to find... Uh, at least one gun overseas seamer, um, at least one spinner, probably mystery spinner, um, mm. and an all-rounder. And you've got to take all three of those at lower price brackets. That's some seriously hefty work to do. Um, and you probably need to find yourself another domestic finger spinner in there as well. Um, and okay, there's a few more options there but perhaps not by the time you get down to 30K where their last slot is. So I can, I could certainly see the value in doing that, but you are putting a lot of pressure on yourself in the middle there. So I think that's the discussion to have is what's the bigger drop-off in this situation? I personally would prefer to have better domestic talent. In general, I think that's a better team-building strategy. I just think that, that adds a slight edge. But the discussion would be, right, okay, What's the comparison between the, who's going to be available at 125, who's going to be available at 75, right? So would you rather have Tom Bunton, Joe Clark, and then say Marco Janssen and maybe Tabre Shamsi? Or do you potentially want to have, let's say you could have a, maybe a Mitchell Stark? Uh, there's, actually, let's go with Nicholas Poren. Let's say they go Nicholas Poren, second pick, and let's say they get, Pat Cummins. So would you like Poren and Cummins, as well as, say, Tom Kola Cadmore and Liam Dawson, maybe, or would you rather have Joe Clark and Tom Banton and Marco Janssen in round to here? I don't know if that, that, that might be the kind of scenario you find yourself in, for example. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think the, the probably the thing that we've got to look at here, I agree with you on 
on having the best domestic players. That, for me, is what this retention and this draft was all about mm. with such few, so few great um, overseas options that are going to be available. Locking in the very best domestic talent is absolutely the way to go. Um, my slight question mark to that would be, uh, we know bowling wins tournaments. Yeah. Just seen it again in the PSL. The best bowling attack tends to win. We're going in with, as you say, some some decent domestic bowlers in Ball, Payne, Higgins, um, Critchley as well. But they're all bowlers that complement a couple of guns. Um, they complement your chicken, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You need your chicken. Um, I, I personally, I rate all of those bowlers. I would be perfectly happy to go into a 100-game with all of them in my core five bowlers. But I, I'm not sure I want them all there. Mm. Um, any of them in any combination, fine. Um, my worry is that I don't think that there will be enough good overseas available come 60K, 50K that are fully available, fully reliable um, and top end enough to be the chicken. I think that's that's the interesting discussion. I, I, I think that's the tough thing for the Welsh Farbs. There aren't really going to be any high-end domestic bowlers there, um, which I think is the tough thing. But hopefully Gary Kirsten can uncover his Nandos and get things sorted. Let's move on to the Manchester Originals. Obviously, that's the side you have a connection with. And I think when I look at this original side, I think there is a lot to like about the way they've gone about retaining players. Because I think, let's, let's, let's be frank, I think the great thing about... Um, the Manchester Originals in terms of you know what they built last year. Obviously, tough tournament times because of a lack of games at Old Trafford and obviously the rain impacting that and then all these replacements. But what you did build there is you had Tom Hartley, Matt Parkinson, Phil Salt, Calvin Harrison. You have this great kind of core of young domestic players and Tom Hartley in round nine of the 50K range, uh, they've got him there. Calvin Harrison is the third final pick in the entire draft in this scenario, they retained him at 30K. There's lots of young talent here. And the fact they filled their last six picks with what I would argue are significantly better players than those draft slots, Charlie, mean that they have a good core here. They're Parkinson in round six, bargain. Phil Salt in round four, I think that's a good selection. You Basically, what you have here are five remaining picks, all of them high-end. You've got three overseas to go and get. It seems like you've got this domestic core, you've got these high-end picks, and it feels like you can build something from that. Yeah, absolutely. I think what I like about this strategy, it does give you a lot of flexibility in the draft. You can really go and attack those high-end options, and you can be flexible with that because you've got a very solid domestic core locked in. And not only is it solid, but it's really, really appropriate and suitable to winning new games at Old Trafford. You've got some fine spin bowlers there with Parkinson, Hartley, and Harrison. You've got two batters who are very good players of spin in, with the likes of Ackerman and Madsen there, both of whom can offer you some very handy part-time spin as well. You've got a nice hitter uh, as a finisher with Jamie Overton. Uh, and Tom Lambie offers you a similar score set as well, albeit left-handed, which is you know quite hard to find you know, in the domestic game. Solid left-hand batters. So I feel like you've covered a lot of grounds there with Manchester Originals in very, very good value brackets. So yeah, that's a good bit of business. And now the challenge, I guess, is to find 
exactly the kind of balance that they want to attack in the draft. Are they going to go overseas really early? Are they going to try to attack some more domestic guys and pick up some kind of mid-tier overseas? But I don't know. But what, what they have is the flexibility to kind of play it by ear, really, and assess the draft list because, you know, you need to know who's available. And they have the option to play either way, which is really, really strong. And Max, that's what I want to touch on with you is this flexibility, but also in terms of how this team was built when you were there and it's kind of built in the same way. Now it feels like a very old Trafford team. You have Parkinson, Hartley and Harrison, three really great domestic spinners that really build something. And then you have, I think, players that complement Old Trafford nicely. Jamie Overton is a death hitter at Old Trafford. I think a place where at times you can get bogged down in the middle of and you really need to attack the death. He's great at that. And then you've got Wayne Madsen and Colin Ackerman who fit that perfectly. They're really good rotators of the strike. They hit it in inventive areas. Wayne Madsen especially is one of the best players of the sweep. And I think injury has kind of put him off the radar, but I think that's a great retention. And obviously Colin Ackerman is probably the greatest player in the world. So it feels like you've got a really good situation there. I, I just think that's a nice way of approaching it. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... Last year, obviously, as you touched on before, uh, we had to replace an inordinate amount of players. Um, it got round to a stage where it felt that like we were replacing a player every week. Jamie Overton and Wayne Madsen, for me, were massive uh, players to lose, uh, largely because there isn't, a, or there wasn't, beyond the people selected in the draft, there wasn't direct replacements for those sorts of players. Um, at the kind of talent level that you need. Um, and if you look at where we went wrong in games, um, the skill set that both of those offer would have been huge. Um, so not only being able to retain them, but, I mean, Madsen at 40k is, is an absolute steal. Um, as you say, I think they've left themselves loads of space to either chase a domestic gun and get some top end overseas or just go all out on on the best set of overseas possible um the only slight uh thing that could be interesting it will totally depend how the draft day goes um uh, there's every chance come draft day that depending on how things go um that 60k slot could be and could end up being quite an interesting one um because they might feel like they've got pretty much a whole team sorted by that point and there's not necessarily somebody that you actually want to pay 60k to um so it will totally depend it may be that there's a great talent there and they're perfectly happy there's a player but not having anything below that you may end up having already built a squad and that's a sort of odd luxury pick at 60. I think that's the thing, though. I think you can afford yourself your luxury pick when you're underpaying talent. We talked about this before, right? If you're paying Tom Hartley that amount, I think he's worth more than that. I think Colin Ackerman and Wayne Madsen are worth more than that. Calvin Harrison is definitely worth more than that. If you have the composite value there, then you can just take a flyer and just accept yeah. that you take the yeah. best player on the board and you just, okay, it's a bit of a reach. But, I mean, let's be frank here. If Delroy Rawlins was there, take that in the skill set of this side. I do think the thing they'll have to do, uh, and... I think they'll really, really need to take a seamer up top. I think the the third overall pick, I really think, should be a seamer. Maybe that's Casigo Ribada. I, I would personally love it to be on Rook uh, No, I just think that's the way they should attack it. So I do think that having a really gun seamer 
and making sure you have a gun seamer would really help given last year and maybe a slight weakness was the domestic seamers and obviously missing Harry Gurney was a big part of that. So I am interested in how the originals go and I, I, I'm excited to see how they attack this. Because I think when you have three top slots, they can get three top players and I think they're in a good position. Let's move on to the Northern Superchargers. A team in real flux. Obviously, they've changed coach. They've changed general manager. They've changed analysts. They've changed everything, really. And they're in an interesting position, I think, because when you look at the Superchargers side, you, you know, you have all of Willie, Rashid, Harry Brook retained. That's really good business. You got Live and Callum Parkinson on low of end deals. I think that's good business. You got Carson Potts. You know, I think when you've got a kind of lack of domestic seam talent available in this draft system, I think those are good retentions. It feels like they've got kind of a good core there. Shame they lost Jordan Thompson. I think he'll earn a lot of money. And um, here's a prediction for you. I think he might get 100K plus. Um, but I think that they're in a good position here. But maybe there's just a couple of picks where I'm not sure about Charlie. Faf Duplessis, for example, not too sure about. But, but in general, I think they're in a good position. Yeah, I think we spoke way before this retention was even announced. So we both kind of agreed that they had a very strong domestic core to be working with here. And they've maintained the majority of that. They've retained the majority of that in here. And yeah, you can you can question some elements. I think the Faf Duplessis one, I don't think I would have done personally. I got a lot of time for Faf. I respect him a lot, but I'm not sure if he's necessarily the best fit for this side going forward. Um, I, I don't know. I just think they'd have wanted someone a bit more attacking if you wanted an opener. I'd have probably let him go and seen who was available in the draft, but you are guaranteed availability with him. So I can understand that point of it as well. And he's probably going to be captain. So it makes sense. I would say the two areas that you'd want to improve here are the top order. Last season just did not work. The Bald Brothers partnership of uh, Live and Lynn just got so <laughs> bogged down. The, the, their inability against spin was just so costly for them. And the, the tactics for, for opposing teams was just too easy to, to suss them out. Um, so you'd think with that in mind, they'd want to strengthen that. Um, I feel like it might have, we don't know the ins and outs, but by losing Tom Kohler-Cadmore, you've arguably lost your ready-made solution to that problem. He was a good player of spin and he was was there and now he's not. Um, maybe you want to get Seamer as well. I think the domestic Seam attack they had last season was all right, but I don't think it was the strongest on offer. And I think it could be improved upon in the draft. So in keeping Carson Potts and Willie, they've got three very good operators there. Maybe they want another, I don't know. But that's my take on it generally. They've done pretty well with their resources. I think bowling-wise, you're kind of set to an extent. I'd want, want I'd want a gun seamer. I think, again, Willie, Carlos, Potts, you add a gun seamer to that, I think you're really set, especially given you've got Adil Rashid and Callum Parkinson there. I think you, you'd want that gun seamer, and then you can attack the batting. I think they're in a really strong position, personally, but I just feel like maybe they could have kept Cola, Cadmore, and Thompson. I don't know if that was an extent of them being promised more money. We don't know. Um, but this is actually one thing that I, I feel like I, I want to ask, Max. Is there any rules on tampering in this? Because in the NFL, um, you are not allowed to approach players before free agency and say, we're going to try and sign you to this, or that you're not allowed to approach players and other teams and be like, you should try and force a trade to us because we'll pay you X amount of money. Do you know how much kind of conversations there are between agents and other teams because it feels like it could get a bit murky um i mean i don't know how much i'm going to get myself in trouble here um it definitely goes on i don't know what the technical rules are um 
but it definitely goes on. All of the agents talk. Um, as, as far as I'm aware, you're allowed to do it. Um, you're allowed to say to somebody, you walk to the draft and we'll promise you X amount of money. Um, so yeah, it, it 100% goes on. Um, and some people's heads really do get turned by it. Um, whether there's then a bit of a bite back on if somebody gets promised that money and it doesn't happen, um, I'm not quite sure where that would end up, but um, I'm sure it has happened already and I'm sure it will happen again this year. That's interesting because I think, I think it's a free market thing ultimately though, isn't it? I'm not sure there's a particular like, well, actually it's particularly bad. Like I, I think, you know, players in the English game and you play, if you're a counter cricketer, you're not paid massive amounts of money. So if ultimately you're able to go earn 25, maybe even 50K more, chase it, I guess. I, I don't have a problem with it. I'm I, I just interested yeah, in kind of yeah. the dynamics of that. And, and, you know, I think TKC uh, and John Thompson might actually earn a bit more money. Actually, it's interesting. We did a little mock draft just to kind of see where our heads were at. And we'll release that and do a podcast about it at a later point. But Tom Kohler Cadmore ended up earning 100K and John Thompson ended up earning 75K just on the basis of the domestic players that were available. So I think that's interesting to think about. But but when you look at this Northern Superchargers team, Max, you've got that first pick and you could get a gun seamer or top-end overseas batter, but, but it feels like they have lots of flexibility. And it feels like I think they're in a pretty strong position, especially, again, when you've got Harry Brook hit 75K at a bargain and you've got all of this talent. It, it feels like they're in a strong place. Yeah, I mean, I, again, they've got some work to do. Um, for me, there were three big issues with the Superchargers last year. One was the captaincy. I'm not saying that David Willey's necessarily a poor captain, but going in with a wildly inexperienced captain was never likely to go well. Mm. So obviously that's what they're trying to solve with retaining Faf. Um, the second Charlie touched on before, how well the, oh, how much they were bogged down by spin, um, particularly up top. Um, but in general, I think the only member of their top six who uh, scores faster against spin than seam was Tola, Tom Cohen Cadmore. Mm. Um, so he's an odd one to let go, given that they now pretty much have to recruit a batter that can hit spin. Mm. Um, unless they're going to do some funky business with pinch hitters. Um, so that's a slightly odd one. They've For me, they've got a fair bit of work to do there. Um, and the third was the seam attack um, because you had a whole load of domestic seamers last year who are all power play specialists. Um, so it's no surprise for me to see Fisher move on and Stone move on purely because not that they're bad bowlers at all, but there's a whole load of other bowlers who do a very, very similar job and are less of an injury worry, less of a worry to be off with England, which either of those guys could be if they're fully fit. Um, so I think they've tried to keep on to some of their good uh, power play seamers. And they, they pretty much, again, have to go and find a top-end death bowler yeah. or two. So would, would that be something you'd hit on on the fourth pick then? Because you've got this balance, right? And you, you've got 
a good core. Again, David Willey, good power play bowler. Bryden Cast is good, in, I think could be a really good enforcer. I think there's lots of upside there. I haven't seen it all the time yet, but it's there. And Matty Potts is a good operator to have. Do you think then with the fact that you've got some good hitters and you've got a good leggy, you really have to hit that fourth pick on the gun death bowler to make sure that you fix that? Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to be that one, but there's only going to be so many available by the time their next pick comes at 75. Mm. Um, And I think that's got to be at least a high priority. Um, It may depend on what's available. As you touched on before, there's probably not a domestic bowler you'd want to pay 125 to. Um, So it's going to depend on who's out there in the international market. But uh, that could certainly be an option to spend 125 there, go and find yourself the spin hitter at 75 and you're a long way to solving their problems as a team. I'm going to throw out some names at you. Azam Khan as your spin hitter. Obviously there's the Islamabad United connection there potentially with a new analyst. That might well make sense. And then you go, I know I say Onrik Nohair for every team, but that's because I love Onrik Nohair. But but you've got options you could get. Pat Cummins, Mitch Stark, you know, those are the kind of names you, you could bandy around here. Rabada as well. That that might be the play then. If you've got Khan in that middle order, David Willey's a decent player of spin as well. And then, yeah, you, you kind of attack it that way. That might be the way to go. On the other hand, if they happen to find that there's a really good overseas spin hitter, available early for example a puran perhaps now whether or not he's actually available we don't know but hypothetically if he comes up they might want to snap him up at 125k and then wait on say a domestic guy like pat brown at 75k who you know numbers wise hasn't been great but it's it's an option but i think this is the thing you you look at what shot them in the foot last year and it was that slot and i love pat brown but I think if you go into Pat Brown as that other seamer, you are asking for trouble because the one thing you really need is a really dependable overseas, not necessarily overseas, but you need a really dependable death bowler. I love Pat Brown, but if he comes in and he's still not quite ready, you're just not going to win the tournament. And so maybe, look, Pat Brown, I'd be happy to have him at the Superchargers. I like him, but I think you probably need to hit that gun death bowler. I think you have to kind of have that, certainty and I think the fact that you've got some good batters you've got a decent all-round bowling tackle already there it feels like you can just prioritize that but but uh, we, we could have this conversation forever but I, I think on my end especially I think you kind of do have to hit that overseas seamer well at some point I don't think you can really wait until the later rounds because if you're waiting for I don't know maybe in the seam shot not really proven. I, 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 I just feel like you probably have to hit that well early. I don't know. I think the other, the other thing we've not touched on, and it will be a huge gap for them, is uh, not having Majib this year. Mm. Um, mm. Again, it's another one of um, Afghanistan having availability issues that they've obviously decided not to spend the big money on him. But that was a huge upside for them last year, having him and Adil Rashid as two highly complimentary bowlers but real world beating top talent um so to lose half of that is is a big gap for them to fill Hmm. let's move on to the oval invincibles a really interesting side they've money balled their overseas previously and they're going to have to do it again because they've got the first slot open but then they have the next five um round two round three round four round five round six 
all filled up with domestic talent. That's Jason Roy, Sam Billingston's on current in round three and four, Will Jackson, Saka Mahmood in round five and six, Reese Topley in round eight, and then you've got Jordan Cox and Nathan Souter filling up those final slots. What, what we like about this Oval Invincibles team is that they have so much domestic talent fit in there. You have the Curran brothers, you have Saka Mahmood, Reese Topley. They have those high-end domestic seamers. We talk about the fact that seamers t20 seamers are kind of in a rare spot there so they don't have to go out there and reach for a overseas seamer potentially then you have will jacks and jason roy at the top of the order that's exciting sam billings is a good wicketkeeper batter in the middle order you've got lots of interesting pieces here so they could go potentially with someone ryan in the top spot and then maybe moneyball it get a, a sandy lamachina later on I don't know. It depends what they're thinking, really. So, so, Max, when you look at how they go about it, how might you attack this draft as the Invincibles? You have this great seam unit. You don't really need another seamer. You have some really good batting talent. Where are you going? Because you need an overseas spinner, but they, they do have options. Yeah, I think they, they definitely have to find an overseas spinner, an overseas wrist spinner, basically. Um it makes the non-retention of Sandeep and uh, Shamsi odd because we think both are going to be fully available. Um, it, it may be that they're waiting to see if someone else takes them at a certain point and if so, they'll write to match. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised to see one of those certainly end up back there. Um as you said, they probably don't need to spend a lot on seamers. They might need one more for the squad, but it doesn't need to be a, a top-end talent. The slightly interesting thing for me is that, as you touched on, the batting group looks decent on paper, but they also only made 150 once last year mm. and ended up losing that game on a flat pitch. So the batting group obviously isn't sorted. Um, so I'd imagine they'll certainly want one of their overseas at least to be a batter um replacing obviously they had ingram last year who didn't quite work out um so i wouldn't be surprised if they go after um a domestic player even with only one slot at the top if they have a, a domestic gun still available i wouldn't be surprised if they if they go with that and then fill three lower slots with the uh, with the overseas so those guns, I imagine, would be Banton and Clark. They feel like they're the guns there. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Because that, that would mean that they'd have to get their overseas from for 60K and 50K, basically. And if I'm just looking at some of the players that we, we've done some projections and who might be available, that would mean Azam Khan, potentially that Evan Lewis, maybe... Um, Riley Russo Riley Russo, Riley really Russo, Russo Riley they Russo need a middle order hole and he was drafted by them back in 2019 so he would yeah. he would make sense for them there's a few on the market of uh, kind of overseas spinners that you could throw in at lower price Imad uh, so that, that, that might be one that they're looking at I think Pakistan's availability might be sketchy at the back end of the tournament with the Asia Cup but Fawad uh, Ahmad um, Fawad could be one yeah Noor um, Ahmad no, definitely could be one. Um, I mean, there's a few knocking about uh, Australia at the moment. And mm. personally, I really like the look of Sanger. Um, I think he could be a real, real find for somebody. 
Um, so I don't think they'll be sweating too much about finding that overseas wrist spinner lower down because um, it doesn't feel like a pick that lots of teams will go after. Um, it feels like other sides have holes elsewhere. Um, and I'd imagine they'll probably try and find a domestic finger spinner as well. Um, but as we'll touch on in a bit, there's probably going to be a few of those uh, leaving Southern Brave. So. Yeah, because obviously there's some good finger spinners around, I think, actually. So that's an interesting yeah. one for them. And let's say they got Tom Banton with that pick. Let's just say they do it. Right? And the Welsh file don't write to match. You have Sam Curran, Tom Banton, Jason Roy, Sam Billings, Tom Curran, Will Jack, Saki Mahmood, Reese Topley. That is eight England international standard players on one team. Now, I don't know how many of them will be there to play, but there's a decent chance that none of them are in the test team. So that would basically mean you'd have eight England internationals and three overseas, which is insanity to me. So I think they're in a good situation. And I think once we know more about availability and who's going to be available and what slots, we can talk about some moneyball picks. But I do think you can get, I think mystery spinners and overseas spinners, you can moneyball a lot of the time. And I think you can also get decent hitters. And I think we can probably pencil in Riley Rousseau, given what we know about the Oval Invincibles. So that's interesting. Trent Rockets, this is really interesting to me. And I think the the matter of availability really comes into the Trent Rockets. Let me go through their side. Uh, They retain Rashid Khan at the 125k range. Also, we don't know about his availability given the Asia Cup, but obviously you retain Rashid Khan. If they didn't, then I think they should just expunge the franchise. Um, Alex Hales and Lewis Gregory, round three, round four. Then you drop into round seven and eight. You've got March and DeLanger and Luke Wood. Sam and Patel and Matt Carter in round nine, round ten. Stephen Mullaney at round 11, podcast favourite, Sam Cook at round 12, and then massive bargain, Tom Moore's round 14. I feel like we have to start with the March and DeLanger issue. I get that he's available, and I get you getting him in round seven, but I, I, I personally, when, when you look at that side, not completely sure why he is a player that you would go after when there will be overseas seamers that also have availability. Am I being harsh there? I, I don't know. Um, maybe marginally harsh. Yeah, I think obviously you had a decent tournament. There's probably an element of him being a known quantity um, that they're quite happy with. As you've touched on before, Rashid Khan is unlikely to play many games. He may play a few, but as you said, you retain him even if he turns up for training once. Um, so... It may be that they just wanted to have an overseas on the board um, and they looked at a bloke who did well for them last year who is a known quantity in that way. They're not paying huge money for him, um, probably slightly higher than they might have wanted, but he still offers a decent option for me at that price. But he's, I think that's the thing with Martin Langer. He's, he's a known quantity, but he's a known unknown. Because you know what you're getting. You know what you're getting is you have no idea what you're getting. It's, it's kind of a confusing element. You know, you know who he is. But you have no idea what's going to play out on any given day. And I, I think Marchand Lang is an interesting low-round option. Um, but that's the kind of game you play with Marchand Lang. Is you really don't know what on earth he's going to do. He might come up and take a fiver like he did. First ever fi- 100 fiver. And he might turn up one day and be absolutely decapitated by a batter. You just don't know what's happening. I think that's kind of a slightly worrying thing for me. When you look at what happened last year, what was the big issue with the Trent Rockets? Tim van der Hoekten went to like three runs of delivery. 
Sam Cooke, we've had discussions about on the podcast before, is a, you know, a, a really nice Red Bull bowler. He has something about him in T20s, but do you want him as a frontline seamer in the 100? I say no. Luke Wood, I have a lot of respect for. I love Luke Wood. Um, but, it, but it feels like that seam, seam kind of department there, Charlie, might still be that weak link. Yeah, I think so. And what I don't particularly like is that they've got three, four, in fact, if you include Lewis Gregory, which you know I don't think I would personally, but um, but basically what I'm saying is that you have three frontline seamers already locked in, um, which doesn't give you much flexibility to get too many more. And mm. I don't think the ones they've got are amazing particularly. So you don't have much of an opportunity to upgrade on what you have without weakening other areas of the team that you could be looking to improve in the draft. And I think there's one or two that that they definitely would like to be improving. So they do lose a bit of flexibility. And while they have locked in a fairly decent team attack, I think it's one that could have been better had they let a couple of those guys go. I think the thing with it is, though, that because they have such a decent team set in terms of the batting department, you've got Dawid Milan and Joe Root there. I don't think Dawid Milan will be playing test cricket. Joe obviously will be. But that means that you have Milan, Alex Hales, Samit Patel, Stephen Mullane, you all set in. Um, so, the, you know, Samit Patel's a fantastic operator. Stephen Mullane had a really good tournament. I think, you know, it is a little bit CSK and a little bit Dad's Army, but you know what they get from Nottinghamshire. They're good players. And I think ultimately what that gives you is that you have some talent there. And also when you have Samit Patel and Stephen Mullane, Mullane didn't bowl last year. He could bowl this year. And look, I think I, I will. I will say this: I despise watching Stephen Mullaney bowl um, because it is is really horrible to watch. But he's really good at what he does. He is he is the modern day Roger Battier, and we all know that's the most exciting player on the planet. So, but if, if Mullaney can bowl, then you have Mullaney and Samet Patel who can bat in the top six, bowling their allocation. Joe Root, by the way, could bowl when he gets there. Then you have Matt Carter who's a good operator for them, and he'll be good in the first 25. So you have those options, especially when you have Rashid Khan. That's really fun. And I think when you have all of those guys who can bowl, maybe you can just have a bit of a weakness in the seam department. Obviously, you can't have a 2021 Tim Van Hupton situation, but maybe you can go in there with March and DeLanger and Luke Wood and see what happens. I don't know. But the thing that complicates it for me slightly is that You've got Alex Hales, Sam Patel, Stephen Mullaney, Dalman, Lewis Gregory set up there. I think you probably would really want a gun top order batter to complement them. That is rumoured to be Joe Clark. If it's not Joe Clark, I'd imagine it'd be Tom Banton. And that those are the rumours. I think they're, they're they're very likely to be true in my mind. But if you if you're going in for those guys, I think that's good strategy. Probably weakens the overseas seamer you could get later on. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, they'll desperately want Joe Clark. Uh, whether Joe Clark's available come pick six might be a different question. Um, but they'll definitely be keen. It's a glaring hole waiting to be filled by him. Um, if they miss out on both of those two, uh, where they go from there could get quite interesting, I think. Um, I slightly disagree with some of the talks, uh, some of the talk on uh, Lewis Gregory. I think he's a he's a very good domestic death option if he's fully fit to to bowl. 
Um, and I think once you've got Delanger, would um, you've already got a lot of spin at the front end anyway, so you're not so worried about getting the power play seamer um, because Wood will bowl a fair chunk of those overs plus a lot of spin. So you're sort of solving the back end. I think if they can get that domestic batter at pick six, they could be a real force here um, because it then gives them scope to, to sort of adjust around and, and fill whatever they want. Uh, the thing that I pulled out of their, uh, their batting group last year, only Samit scored more than 100 runs and a strike rate of over 135. That's for a team that made it as far as they did. That's a real problem. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised. Obviously, they'll target that domestic batter early. I wouldn't be surprised to see them spend one of those 75k slots on another, um, whether it be someone like Cobain that's done well on smaller grounds. Um, we might see him go at that price. I like Delroy Rawlins there potentially as well. I know I keep saying Delroy Rawlins, but you've got a guy with lots of upside who hits quickly. I also think they could use Tom Moores more. I do want to, I want to pull up on the Gregory thing. Uh, this interests me because I think me and Charlie both like Lewis Gregory as a death hitter, as a batter. I think he's valuable in that sense, especially against team. When you look at this bowling lineup, you've got Samet, Matt Carter, Luke Wood. That's the power play sorted. Yeah. Uh, given Lewis Gregory is aging, I know he plays a lot of cricket at Taunton, which impacts his stats. I wouldn't necessarily see him as a high-end death option. So what is it that you see and think, actually, Lewis Gregory can fill this role? Let's just take the injury out of it and the age, just for a moment, because obviously that's a factor. But what do you see in Gregory as a bowler that, that you know, kind of think, well, actually, we could maybe wait a bit for another seamer? Yeah, I don't think he's... Um, I'm not sure I, I quite class him as peak high end um, but I think he's a very capable option um, I don't see it as a as a huge gap in the side you've got Wood will bowl death overs Delanger will bowl death overs you're only really relying on someone else to bowl an over at most two at the, at the back end I think Gregory hits his Yorkers well enough that he can be considered a, a proper death option there if they manage to get the domestic batters they want and are able to go and fill that third overseas slot with uh, a top-end bowler, a uh, seam bowler, then, okay, he may not be required to bowl as many there. You might see less of Delanger at the back end. You might see less of Wood at the back end. Um, but for me, he's certainly capable of fitting in as a part of it. Um, I don't think they yet have a bowler that... Uh, sort of Lockie Ferguson type that you're throwing the ball to at the end, a bummer, that that sort of bowler that you go, well, good luck getting him away at the death. Um, they don't have that, but they have a lot of people that I think are capable at the back end. So here's the scenario, Charlie. Let's say they get Joe Clark up top. I'm not sure he'll be available, but let's say they get one of Clark or Banton. Would then potentially, that's, I, I'm just going to spitball the player who might be available in the 75k range as an overseas seamer. Marco Janssen, bit different kind of bowler to the others they have. If you could bring him in, does that bring balance to the side? Because it does feel like when you have 
the high-end talent they have, even if Rashid Khan doesn't play, let's just say Rashid Khan's there for the future. You have Samet, Matt Castle, Rashid Khan, Stephen Mullaney, Luke Wood can bowl up top. If you've got a gun seamer, that's your bowling sorted. And as you rightly say, Max, and we are fully behind this, bowling wins your tournaments. That puts you in a great position. Yeah, I, I think... If they lock in that really high-end domestic opener, the Clark Banton level player that they're clearly in the market for to replace Darcy Short, who, let's face it, was a unqualified um, unsuccess last season. It didn't work out. That was a pick that didn't work out. They want to replace him, and Clark or Banton would be a very obvious pick to replace him. That then allows you to change the balance of the overseas, and logically, I think the, the way to do that would be to go for a seamer. A, a deaf operator would make sense. I just think, in all honesty, yes, I've been a little bit, you know, a little bit harsh on that seam attack. And I, I, to a degree, I always stand by that. But I do think that on the whole, the domestic core they've got is strong enough that you can be flexible with that pick. If you don't get Clark or Banton, and, you know, I think they probably would be able to get one. But if they weren't able to do that, then they have the flexibility to change the way they approach that and go into that seamer early, maybe, and then get an overseas batter or something like that. You know, the thing is, you can be flexible. This is what I'm saying here. The call that they've got is strong enough that they can be flexible on draft day. And I think this is a really interesting situation because obviously Stephen Fleming's a previous coach. This does feel like a Stephen Fleming side. Um, but I think Andy Flower's got a lot of options here. And I do think if you can get that gun death seamer, I, I think there are options there. I talk about Marco Janssen. Obviously, Flower loves his have taller bowlers. I think Blessing Masrabani maybe might be an option there. There's lots of players you can pick, but I think in general, the Rockets are in a good situation if they nail that overseas pick in the fifth, sixth kind of round range. I'd love it to be a seamer. I just think that would complete the side and make them a really, really great team. So if you look at it, you've got you know, you've got Hales, you've got Milan, you've got Rashid Khan, Gregory the Death Hitter, Samet, Mullaney, they could be a proper powerhouse. So interested to see how they go. Two more teams, Birmingham Phoenix, podcast favourite. Um, we are unashamedly big fans of what the Phoenix do. Uh, I think they're in a good position here. They retain Liam Livingston in the 125K bracket. Moen Ali moves down to the 100K bracket. Then you retain Adam Milne, who was one of the best bowlers in the tournament, probably the best bowler in the tournament uh, last year. Benny Howell comes in at round six. Tom Abel at round eight. Will Smead staying at round 11 after what he did in the PSL blows me away. The man basically scored 200s in the second highest you know, quality tournament in the world, if you talk about franchise cricket. That was remarkable. Uh, Chris Benjamin and Miles Hammond round 11, round 12. Again, great picks. And then Henry Brooks in round 14. The, the, the Phoenix had one big issue last year. Let's be frank. It was the fact that they didn't have a good second seamer. So when you look at the side, and again, they have, you know, really great strengths in terms of having some high-end batters in the domestic level. Your Livingstons, your Milnes, your Abel, your Smead, your Benjamin, your Hammond. Lots of talent there, especially if Chris Wilkes maybe doesn't make the, the test side, that there's more backups there. It feels like, yet again, Charlie, the Phoenix are in a strong position. They are. They've done some great negotiating. I think moving Moen Alley down to 100k is really big for them because it gives them two of their first three picks. So that's one 125k pick and 100k pick. That's a really good bit of work. Tom Abel has moved down from pick four to pick eight as well, which is probably fair enough based on you know lack of contribution last season. But that still represents great value for him as well. Will Smead and Benjamin in rounds 10 and 11 is also insane value given their upside, and particularly Smead. You know, what he's done recently has been superb. He was one of the breakout players last season. He only continued to share that form. 
this guy is going to be a real star in, I think, a very, very quick amount of time. To get him where they have is phenomenal. They've got a really big chance here to attack that problem area, I think, and secure a really top quality overseas seamer in either pick one or three. They also might want to plug the gap filled by Finn Allen because last year their overseas balance was one opener in Finn Allen, one seamer with Milne and a leggy in Imran Tahir. Now, I'm going to assume they want to keep the leggy. They've always kept Adam Milne. So presumably they're going to look at a leg spinner at some point. I don't know when, but given the quantity out there, they might go a little bit later. So for me, I'm thinking what they might want to do is if a bantle of clock is available, that might be their first pick. And then they might want to look at an overseas seamer at pick three, or they might want to go for the seamer first. I don't know, but they have the flexibility there. I'm curious to see how they approach it because I do think the seam is probably their most pressing issue. I wonder if Will Smead negotiated his contract before he went to the PSL and probably realized how great he is. Like I, I think that's probably the the scenario here because he's so we, we've talked to him, we've interviewed him. He's a lovely guy, and, and when you're that young, and I think you have a breakout season. Given how I think how nice he is in nature, he probably thought, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just come onto the scene. You know, I wasn't picked up in the draft. I was a replacement. You know, and he goes last to PSL and bashes two nineties. He probably realizes, well, actually, but he's he's going to earn a lot of money in his lifetime. So that's worry about that. Whoever put a contract in in front of him before the PSL and convinced him to sign it deserves a raise. Um, that's <laughs> probably the best business of. Well, for me, it's it's that or Adam Live at forty k. Yeah. Both of those are incredible bits of business. Um, but as you touched on as well, uh, having Moeen go down a slot and having Abel drop down slots gives them so much flexibility as well. Um, so those are really underrated little adjustments as well. I think this is the thing. We, we talk about Banson and Clark a lot. This is why I believe they'll both go in the first row because there are multiple teams who should be in. And I think the Phoenix going in for them would make sense because then if you bring in, let's say it's Tom Banton, for argument's sake, um, uh, you, you could look at a, a, a lineup, for example, of Will Smead, Tom Banton, Moe Alley, Liam Livingston, Chris Benjamin, Miles Hammond. That could be a top six. And then maybe you look into going and getting a seamer later on or a spinner. I, I'm certainly surprised they didn't keep Adam Zampa. They could have retained him. I'm surprised that they didn't go in for him. That might have made sense. And if you retain Zampa, then maybe you could get your seamer somewhere else. I know that they might have maxed out their retentions. That, that might be it. But there we are. I, I, but it does look like Zampa maybe later on, that kind of leggy, uh, a seamer in round, say, three. Potentially that's... a uh, uh, I don't know, we could throw some names around. That's, that's a Jai Richardson. You put Richardson and Zampa alongside a Banson and that side looks formidable, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the uh, the absolute priority has got to be finding the best seamer they can get, um, certainly for the back end. Um, as you mentioned before, the domestic seam options um, didn't go as well as they'd have hoped last year. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if one of them uh, comes back later on. Um, if they're not picked up early on, they might well use a right to match on one of them um, just to have something back in domestically. Um, but they're definitely going to pick up at least one overseas seamer for the back end. Um, and that's got to be a priority. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if... Uh, Zampa does come back, but it, similarly with uh, Livingston's leg spin, 
and having Mo in there as the off that mm. it's not desperate to bring back a, a, a wrist spinner. So we could see them go um, down the left arm orthodox route and um, and spend all their money on on overseas seamers, um, which would be exciting. But um, it's certainly something they need to prioritise. I think that's this is the thing about I think the the domestic seamer or at least the second seamer was their big Achilles heel last year and that's what lost them the tournament ultimately and obviously Pat Brown you could say is going to be that gun guy for you and we could have looked that back in the original draft that could have been the thing obviously suffered injuries that hurt them but uh, if you remember they took Tom Helm in round six in the original draft which is before Tymel Mills was drafted I think that just shows how difficult it is to build a side because even the phoenix who i think did a good job really whiffed on the helm pick a little bit when they could have had mills and obviously mills at that point was not quite coming back to the peak he had that little trough area um between his really great start and now coming back fully into form but i think that's an interesting thing to think about is that it's really difficult to be perfect and every team has those weaknesses i think apart from the southern brave um who do not have those weaknesses and i think are a weird side to talk about because they are going to make three selections in this draft. Um, because, no, 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 I, I, hear me out, guys. They're going to make three selections because we all know what they're going to do with the first pick. It's rumoured they're going to take Quinton de Kock as a right to match. And then by all accounts, that's what they're lining up. So it, they might change their opinion on that. But say if they got Quinton de Kock and that was their right to match, they have three more picks uh, in round nine, round 13, and round 14. So uh, it's going to be a pretty chill evening for the Southern Brave, to be honest. But, but that, that's what they're lined up with. I'll go through their retentions. It, it's stacked. That's, for the sake of argument, leave Quinton to, quite out, to cock out, but it looks like he'll be their eighth overall pick. In the 125k range, you've got Marcus Stoinis. Then you've got James Vince, Tymel Mills, Chris Jordan, George Garton, Alex Davies, Jake Linter in round eight, I think it's a bargain. Tim David. And Tim David in round 10 is great. Ross Whiteley, we love Ross Whiteley at round 11. And then Craig Overton, I think, is a really, really good complementary piece for what the Southern Brave want to be. And you counter in the fact that Joffrey Archer might play this year. And wow. I'm not sure how much there really is to talk about with the Southern Brave because they do look so strong. I mean, this is a composite lineup of how they might line up already. Stoyness and Quinton de Kock opening. Vince Davies, 3-4. Tim David, 5. Ross Whiteley, 6. And then you go Garton, Jordan, Archer, Linter, Mills. It's a great team. But I, I do think the, the, the later picks are interesting. I think they're going for a left-arm finger spinner. But let's talk about those top two options. Let's say they keep Quinton de Kock. Is that good business? But also Marcus Stoyness. I'm intrigued by that. I guess it's an availability thing because they could have had Russell. So what is it about Marcus Stoinis that they've wanted to keep? For me, I, I think it is an availability thing. Um, I think it's um, it would be great business for De Kock, uh, particularly with him not playing Test cricket um, anymore. You're obviously going to get um, a lot of South Africans who will be as available as the England Test players are. Um, so a lot of those South African options who are test cricketers aren't going to be fully available. You're a barter types. Um, and yet de Kock will be. So that will be huge if they can wrap him up there. Um, the, the odd thing for me last year uh, with the Brave was that they drafted three 
left arm orthodox rollers. Mm. Um, and I found that a bit odd at the time because I looked at it and thought, well, there's no way they will play together. Um, and it then seems equally odd to me that they've let all three of them go um, because they're all good players. You'd, you'd want at least one of them. Uh, and for me, that's the work that they need to do. Um, that side looks a good side. But if, for example, I was um, at the Originals or at uh, Phoenix or anywhere that could produce a proper spinning wicket, I'd be preparing an absolute dust bowl, <laughs> playing four spinners and saying, go on, we'll play you on that, thanks. Because, okay, you've got Lintot in there at the moment, but that's the only spin option. Um Let's not discount Tim David for a moment. Gosh, the the, the powerhouse of Ospin. Now, you are right. What I would say, though, I've, I've watched a lot of games at the Aegeus Bowl, a lot of games, and I have watched Fakas a man tie batters up with his left arm spin. It's not particularly difficult to bowl left arm spin there, might be my one thing to say. But they did have Danny Briggs and Liam Dawson, who were two high-end players. Danny Briggs is you know, the all-time leading wicket-taker in the blast, and you, you love what Liam Dawson offers. I wonder if they just think that there's value later on in terms of a left-arm spinner. There are a lot of guys who didn't play in the tournament last year that you might think, good option. For example, for me, Daniel Moriarty is a guy that I'm a huge fan of, and despite lots of players dropping out, wasn't picked up last year. And there are, there are other role players that you could maybe fit in. So I wonder if that's just their thought in that, okay, let's keep these high-end players and that's kind of just, you know, you've got a linter and let's just have a couple of swings on spinners later. You might go for a Moriarty. Maybe you have a swing at Rayhan Ahmad. I, I don't know, but maybe that's yeah, their thinking. I think it's one of those where I, I agree with you and I can certainly see the thinking, the, the people that they've retained are oh, great. There's no issues there. Um, I think your slight problem is that when all three of those go, they're going to need to go into a game with another spinner. Mm. Um, and by the time their first pick comes along at uh, 50k, all of the top players will have gone. All the best spinners that you want in your first choice team will have gone by 50k, in my opinion. Um, so, yes, there are other options available. Um, there are definitely people that can be picked up there. I mean, they obviously released Archie Lenham as well, who mm. I wouldn't be surprised to see go elsewhere. Um, but they've got to find a spinner that they're going to play week in, week out, or be able to play week in, week out. Uh, and that's a lot of pressure to find low on. You see, Ed and I had this discussion the other day, and I think we both kind of suggested that it might not be the worst idea ever if instead of going for Quinton the Cock as their first pick, they went for a spinner who could bat in the middle order, like a Shadab Khan, for example, because I think that solves a lot of those issues that you allude to there. You add an extra batter and you have a frontline spinner who can play in every game. You don't really lose, obviously you lose a bit of the batting, obviously, but you know, you don't necessarily need to have an opener there when you've got Vince and Davis as well. I don't think that would be a terrible way for them to go. I don't think they will, but it's an option for them. No, I'd, I'd agree. I think um, Shadab's unlikely to be available for the tournament. Um, and those sorts of players don't grow on trees. Um, but if there was one available, it's certainly an option that they could go down. 
I agree with you. I don't think they will. They'll just take the cock and solve the spin issue later. Um, but I, I can see that being their Achilles heel. I would be surprised if they don't lose at least one game due to the opposition out bowling them spin-wise. That's interesting. But I think, I'm trying to think of a way of word this, but is it kind of acceptable to have that hole when you know how good you are in other aspects? Because they have, I would argue, the greatest seam attack built in franchise cricket history. I think that's like a perfectly reasonable, especially if we consider that Joffre Archer turns up and if he plays, Archer, Mills, Garton, Jordan. So do you just kind of accept that you're going to bank and linter and get a, a bargain somewhere else? Is that something you can't just have to accept? Yeah, I mean, you make a decent point of you can't solve all your problems. You are never going to have the perfect team. Um, so there probably is an element of of having to um, to just accept that it's not going to be quite what you want. Um, it may be that they get lucky and they, that there's the exact player they want is still available at 50k. Um, not quite convinced on it being the best seam attack in franchise history, but I well, don't have any. A, any you can have an argument with it. You can have an argument with it. I guess. <laughs> I mean. That was pretty much the Sussex attack a couple of years ago, was it not? It is exactly the Sussex attack. You're absolutely correct. So it's... (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, there's a lot to like about that side, isn't there? Um, It's no huge surprise that they won last year um, once they got on the roll. Um, The sort of interesting thing was they obviously lost a couple of games early on. Um, We had a rained-off game against them where... We certainly felt we were in a very good position and that could have been them. They, they'd have been out after four games. Um, so for them to then turn it around and look so good at the back end and now on paper look so good going into this draft is, is kind of a funny one, isn't it? Um, from what could have happened. I think that's the thing though. And you, this really is relevant for me. Everyone says that the IPL are extending the tournament because of money. I think what's happening is that Mahela J. Wardner is holding them gunpoints to ensure that the Mumbai Indians are never <laughs> hurt by the fact that Mahela J. Wardner cannot win games. I, I genuinely don't know. I don't know if he just like forgets to prepare. He goes for beers with the lads before the first game. That's a great night. He just enjoys himself. And he realises two games in, he probably should start coaching. I don't know. It's just a J. Wardner thing, isn't it? I think it's remarkable because, I, in my opinion, I think he's one of the finest coaches out there. But but regardless of how much talent he is, just the, he just loses the first couple of games, and that's just it. <laughs> I don't understand it. It's remarkable to me. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea why that's happening. <laughs> Can't explain it. Maybe he sort of wants to bring everyone down to size a little bit first. I don't know. I mean, as as obviously from a Lancashire point of view, uh, the other thing for me uh, now that we've picked up Tim David as well, I think that's remarkable business from them at fifty k. Um, particularly if we go down the route of people being available, uh, fully available, there are not going to be better people than Tim David uh, in terms of of that. So they've done a lot of very good business here, haven't they? Um, they replace he is their Andre Russell now, I guess. I think they're banking on the fact that they can get some value up top that you you might not get if you pick Russell there by picking. Yeah, you know, I, I think what is 
a very good option. I'm surprised that Tim David is still a player that you can pick up for that little. I know 50K feels low. I'm not, I'm not saying he's a 125K player, but it feels like a massive bargain. So I think he's another one that probably was signed early. Before, yeah. Before um, must have probably been. A, a sort of early December, pre doing well in the Big Bash, pre doing well in the PSL. Um, and we've got to remember with David, I mean, he's still only sort of 18 months to two years into really exploding onto the scene. Yeah. So we take a few months out of that um, as to where he was in December. Yeah, I mean, it was still was good business then, but it looks remarkable business now. So there we are. Those are, are all of the retentions. We've gone through them all. I think there's lots of interesting ground covered there. Max, I think my, my kind of final thought for you on this is that when you look at these, all of the business these teams have done, is there... Uh, something that specifically stands out to you in terms of a trend of what's happened here. And I guess what kind of teams are in the strongest positions apart from let's say the Southern Brave? Yeah. I mean, I think um, as we mentioned before that having, having the best domestic players possible as your core now is huge in any draft scenario, in any franchise tournament, you very, very rarely see, sides win franchise tournaments on the back of purely overseas performance. Uh, there has to be a good domestic core there. So the sides that have been able to wrap that up, um, and obviously some teams have gone about it in different ways, um, but the sides that have got that in the bank and are then able to go and find the overseas um, is really important. Um, and it's going to stand those sides in good stead. The interesting thing is definitely going to be come draft day, how many top-end talents are available um, from an overseas point of view, how many people have to be pushed in at, at low slots. Um, and I think we could see some really interesting overseas picks, depending on on quite what people think of the Future Tools programme by, by draft day. Really interesting, Max. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a long one, but I think it's been a really fun one. I think we've learned a lot. So thank you so much for your time, mate. No, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast 100 and on all sorts of social media platforms. Charlie has set us up on Facebook and Instagram. We're all over the place. And if you want to get in contact, just drop us a message. Uh, in the meantime, have a lovely day and we'll speak to you soon.